Throughout Scripture, God tells us to be prepared for the part of life which none of us are exempt. Not even when Jesus was on this earth. What I'm talking about is suffering. Uh, Through the Holy Spirit, it's revealed to us that suffering comes in many ways at different times in many varieties. Someone once labeled them as the D's of suffering. The reason for it is because many of the sufferings that occur to us, oftentimes stacked on top of each other, begin with the letter D. Here's some of the ones that he was talking about. Disappointment, delusion, discouragement, distress, disaster, disease, divisiveness, deviancy, divorce, depression, death. Just to name a few of the things of how suffering comes to us in many ways, in many times, uh, at many opportunities that come into our life by just living here. Uh, two writers, the book of Job and the writer of First and Second Peter, deal extensively with suffering. You know, today in our lesson, we could take many approaches to this topic. How to cope and thrive or avoid some forms of suffering. Or the approach of how to find healing or strength or inspiration or encouragement in times of suffering. Uh, we could talk about the five stages of suffering or grief and what stage of suffering am I in presently? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, or acceptance. By the way, as I've said before, the Word of God adds a sixth stage. It's called trust in Him. We could also spend a great deal of time talking about the mental, physical, and emotional toll suffering has on all of us. Certainly, I'm going to make some very brief references to that today. But I don't want this to be like one big group therapy today. I want us to take our time today to start thinking about and thinking deeper of our faith and relation to suffering. Now, when you read Peter, it's mostly talking about suffering simply because you're a Christian. However, some of the things he says about faith and suffering in the context of persecution are very important doctrines for any type of suffering that we may encounter today. Uh, Regardless of the suffering, uh, we need to lean upon the disciplines of the Christian life. Prayer, worship, encouragement from others, hope, inspiration, trust in God, and as we pointed out last week, living by the standard of the Word of God. Uh, This picture on your screen is the process of a goldsmith using a refiner's fire. Uh, He puts the gold under the fire in order to refine it by removing the dross, the impurities, and thereby giving the gold a greater worth and value. If you're new here, the more you learn about this congregation, the more awareness you're going to have of the many different types of deeds of suffering that have been experienced in this group. Uh, The richness, the quality of life that many in our group have serves as a great guidepost and mentorship for us that God indeed brings about greater strength and value through the paradox of the weakening effects of suffering. In fact, once a month on Sunday evenings in the upstairs room in the house, a support group for cancer meets. It started with just a few members of this congregation And now others from the congregation and the community have joined them as well. 
When they meet, they support, they inspire, they pray, they encourage, they give each other courage and hope, uh, share God's doctrines of the relation of faith and suffering. I want to encourage you to be part of that group or get someone you know that needs such a support group. And get in touch with David Ard to find out more about the next meeting. David, where are you? Yeah, raise your hand, David, and he'd be glad to talk to you about it. He's the facilitator for the course. And he's one of those people that he's learning richly about how God can take the weakening effects of suffering and make us stronger. Well, our main text for today comes from 1 Peter 3 through 8, primarily 6 through 8, those verses. Uh, from our series, and perhaps even before then, you know that in the first part of his life, Peter was a commercial fisherman. Now in the decades following the cross, Peter's life has been shaped and transformed. Uh, he describes himself as a shepherd, which, by the way, is how Jesus took his heart and changed his heart following Peter's denial during the trial and then the eventual crucifixion of our Lord. Following the resurrection of Jesus around a fire early one morning, fixing breakfast for his disciples. And that's just a great picture of itself. A dead Jesus who's now alive fixing breakfast for his disciples. What? How can you imagine being part of that? But around that fire, he told Peter, Peter, you have a new role in life. You're no longer just going to be a fisherman. I'm not just changed your name from Cephas to Peter. I'm changing your commission. From now on, you're going to be a shepherd. You love me, feed my sheep. You love me, feed my lambs. And that's exactly what Peter did the rest of his life. So his words to that group of Christians that needed pastoral care in the first century still nourish and comfort and inspire and give courage to us today when we go through our painful trials. So listen to these words of how encouraging they are. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. As I read and thought on those encouraging words preparing for this lesson, the first word I thought of was the word intentional. There are some things that we must intentionally do when we find ourselves in the fire. In order for the refinement fire to bring forth a stronger and more valued quality to our life, there are some intentional steps that I need to take. Do you see the intentionality in these verses? What do we do during the refinement? Think on what you have. Salvation. A hope. An inheritance. 
in Jesus Christ. A faith shielded by the power of God. Think on what you have. Rejoice in what you have. Because of this, we can greatly rejoice. Look forward to what you have. Our faith is in Jesus. We fix our attention on Jesus. He's the reason for our salvation, our inheritance, our hope. Why we can have such an incredible faith and an inexpressible joy. Intentional living. Well, breaking that out a little bit, there are are some things that go with intentional living. Uh, It starts with the question, well, what are my expectations? Often we have a problem with our expectations, don't we? When a trial comes upon us, depending upon how intense it is, we're often put into shock. Why is this happening to me? I I wasn't expecting this. I I didn't know I was going to go through this. However, isn't the word of God crystal clear that we should expect trials of many kind at many different times in many different ways? Isn't that what Peter's saying here in this writing? Look what he's saying to this group here. They have an inheritance in Christ. They have a salvation in Christ. Their hope is in Christ. They're shielded by the power of God because of their faith. And yet, they are having to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Faith does not exempt me from suffering grief and trials. But faith does shield me from the intentions the devil may have in the trial. Now, hold that thought. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. Very important thought. But we should expect trials. Isn't that what James said? Whenever you go through trials of many kinds, James 1, 2, not if or maybe or possibly, but whenever you go through them. As Peter gets towards the end of his first letter, chapter 4, he says, you know, fiery ordeals, ordeals rather, should not be something that surprise you, as if you weren't warned about them, as if they're some sort of strange thing to you. No, you should be expecting them. So we need to be prepared. The ordeal, fiery or not, is headed our way, or you may be in it right now. That's why it's important that we need to be involved in the daily disciplines of preparation through worship and prayer and the Word of God and being encouraged by other Christians to prepare ourselves for when a trial may come. You know, if you wait to get water and food supplies on the day a hurricane's coming to Somerville, you're going to find yourself standing in long lines at stores with empty shelves, and you're putting your family into a possibly dire situation. It usually takes FEMA three to five days to even get here and get their act together. However, if you plan ahead a week or so in advance, with supplies on hand for three to five days, you're prepared, and you're not fretting about trying to find supplies, and you can take care of other pressing needs that your family may have. But what we often do in suffering is try to provide explanations, not just expectations, but we try to provide explanations. There must be a cause and effect as to why I'm going through this. You know, the one thing the Bible does not give is a set of simple answers to the complexities of suffering. In fact, many times it does not give us specific answers at all. So by nature, being the humans that we are, we're going to try to give you an answer to anything. You know, you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. It may be right or it may not be right, but I just, I just feel like I need to give you an answer, uh, an explanation. Why am I suffering in this fire refinement? That's an explanation I want. So some conclude, well, maybe it's my own fault. You know, if only I'd had more faith. If only I'd done something different. If only I had lived a better life. Somehow this suffering, this trial in my life is my own fault. 
I should have done something more. I deserve this. That's the explanation. It's my fault. Or another explanation others give is that it's God's fault. You know, if God is sovereign, if he's in total control, then why did he let this happen to me? It's not fair. It's not right. I don't understand. God, it's not my fault. It's your fault. I don't deserve this. I've been faithful and I don't deserve what is happening to me. Not my fault, it's your fault. I appreciate what Rick Warren says about suffering. And he said this before his son committed suicide, years before his son did this. And even after his son committed suicide. Rick Warren says, suffering can make you either better or bitter. It can make you better or bitter. That is so true. If our faith is sunshine faith, only good for us on the sunny side of life, but we're always disappointed in God on the rainy days of life, we will eventually explain the rainy days as God, as being God's fault, even though we know that Jesus says that God makes the rain and the sun to fall on both the just and the unjust. When we're living intentionally in refinement, we don't spend a lot of time, or we shouldn't spend a lot of time placing the blame on self or on God. Nor is the best explanation the cynical view that we just live in a broken world of randomness where life is just a matter of a series of accidents. It's just a matter of luck. There's no purpose. There's no explanation. There's nothing to be gained through this suffering. I just drew a bad hand in life. So it's up to me to make the most of the bad deal because there is no God, or if there is, he doesn't care about me. Cynicism. So as you can see, there are some pretty common explanations given by many that go in different directions. But what makes them so compelling is that if we dig just a little bit into the three explanations, we can sometimes see in the word of God that suffering is sometimes my fault. That God does permit suffering for his purpose. Sometimes it's his fault. And Jesus says sometimes things just happen with no real purpose of all. At all. Like the time when he was asked the question, why did those 18 people die when the tower fell on them? And Jesus said the reason why those 18 people died when the tower fell on them was because the tower fell on them. <laughs> there was no explanation. There was no purpose behind it. It was just an accident. A random act. So intentional living in times of suffering. What am I to learn from that in terms of explanation? Well, it shouldn't lead me down the path of accepting unwarranted blame, of accusing God unjustly, or assigning everything that happens to me cynically to a series of bad luck. Uh, just look at what our Savior went through. 1 Peter 3.18. What do we know about Jesus? He lived a perfect life, didn't he? He could not have done anything better or differently. And yet he experienced isolation from God on the cross. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? But his death on the cross was not the result of bad luck, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, it was the divine plan and purpose of God before the foundation of the world. The greatest suffering that ever occurred was when the sinless Jesus took on all the sins of everyone on the cross in order to make us righteous. I think of Job, an ordinary man with extraordinary faith. Look in Job 1. What happened to Job was not his fault. In fact, he's described here as a righteous and blameless man, a man who fears God and shuns evil. 
And in this epic event, it is clear that God blesses those who follow him, puts a hedge around them, but he will not exempt us from suffering. So in this conversation that Job knew nothing about between God and the devil, the devil clearly reveals his intention in suffering. The devil makes the point. He says, the only reason Job is following you, God, is for the benefits. God, if you remove all the blessings, then Job will curse you. Now, granted, this story is disturbing. (laughs) It, it, It is unsettling. This story is disturbing, unsettling, because it tells us that God tells the devil to put Job to the test. He permits that. But while it is disturbing and unsettling, what it reveals is the intention of the devil with the suffering. What is the devil's intention with the suffering he puts on Job? It is to make Job curse God, to defeat his faith in God. The devil believes that he puts, if he puts us under enough pressure, we will abandon God. You know, Satan is not all wrong about that, is he? Satan is his most dangerous when he tells the truth, although it's always stuffed in a lie. Honestly, in the depths of our soul, well, let me back up there. I'll just speak for myself. I won't confess for you. In the depths of my soul, I do sometimes wonder if I'm following God for the benefits and not out of a love for him. If certain benefits in my life were removed, would I lose my faith in God. There have been times in my life where I've lost things and I have not abandoned God. There are times in my life where I've lost people I love dearly in my life and I did not abandon God. I just wonder if there's anything out there in the future if God took, if if benefits were taken from me, would I abandon God? And And Satan says, of course you would. The only reason you follow him is for the benefits That has not been the case in my life, but it still makes me wonder at times because I have certainly seen followers of God walk away from him because of losing certain benefits through suffering. But you know, when we walk away, we prove the devil's correct, don't we? We prove his intention is right. It's it's like the devil saying, see, I told you the only reason you followed God was for the benefits and you did not love him. However, when you look at this story closer and get away from the shock value of how could God allow this to happen to such a faithful follower, you begin to get a more optimistic picture. At least I do. I hope that you do. What I see is what God can do in suffering. Notice, when the devil brings the suffering, he is the one who brings the suffering. It's not acts of God. It is the acts of the devil, although God ultimately did allow it. But when the devil brings a suffering and stacks it on top of one another, one above the other, Job proves that Satan is wrong. Job one twenty two says, Job did not sin when everything was stacked up against him. He did not charge God with any wrongdoing. I mean, he cursed the day he was born. He agonized and questioned where God is. He goes through all the stages of suffering and grief, but he never loses his faith in God. He proves the devil to be wrong. And so by allowing Job 
to have all the deeds of suffering except for divorce just stacked up here, one after the other on top of him. All these different things, not just one thing, but many, many things together to make it just so seemingly impossible. God did this so that he could prove that if we experience the worst possible things in life, God will not abandon us, nor will we abandon him. You see, Job proved that the refinement fires of suffering can indeed reveal what God can do. What the devil wants to use to destroy us and make us bitter and blame God or abandon God, God can use to make us stronger, confirm our faith, and make it more valuable than gold. You know, our God is, don't be cynical here. Don't get lost in the story here. God is a great caring God through all times. Uh, One time he compared himself in Isaiah to a mom and a child. We know that a mom loves her newborn baby unconditionally. Many moms do. Physically, chemistry, and emotionally. There's nothing like the bond of a mom to her newborn baby. A A new mom bonds to her child, and it's so strong and so protective and so compassionate and caring and loving, and it's forever. God says, I'm like that with you. Whatever you experience in life, I I will never abandon you. I will never forget you. In fact, I am even better in my love than a mom with a newborn child. For my love for you is unconditional. I will never forget you. You see, as Isaiah, God points out here in Isaiah, not all new moms have an unconditional love for their baby. That's why a million plus every year go to government-sponsored places like Planned Parenthood, where Recent and undercover investigative reporters discovered that Planned Parenthood not only aborts babies, but they sell their baby parts for profit. The lack of love some moms have for their babies is why social service agencies are overworked and overwhelmed by the number of social work cases of moms who abandon their children. God says, I will never leave you or forget you. It is what Job learned by being intentional during his suffering and what we can experience as well. So that's why Peter says, when we believe in Christ, even though we cannot see him, even though suffering sometimes makes him feel so far away, because we know what God can do and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, we're filled with an inexpressible joy. Well, what can God do besides just give us comfort? Well, in 1 Peter 2.12, here's what he can do. If we'll continue to be faithful in him, We defeat Satan's intention of trying to get us to give up on God or blinding unbelievers to the light of the good news of Christ. See that here in chapter 2, verse 12? When we continue to live good lives, that is living the gospel, the good news, that leads others to God, not away from God. What does it mean to live the good news, the good life? It means love and service and forgiveness and mercy and generosity and compassion toward others. We keep doing the things that God has called us to do in terms of being a Christ-like example, and it has the potential. God can use that to lead others to Christ. Hebrews 12, we discover the refining fire of God in suffering can be one of discipline. Now, I know so often we get confused between suffering that looks like punishment when it's actually discipline. 
Uh, We are not infinite enough in our wisdom to sometimes know the difference. But as a child of God, we expect to be disciplined, the Hebrew writer says, because we know God loves us. And a parent who loves his or her child will discipline that child because they know discipline is what's best for them. And we also know that through discipline, what God can do, here it is, produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for us. So the intention of the devil might be to get us to blame ourselves or blame God or become cynical about life. But what God can do is actually use us to defeat Satan's plan and produce something even better. Get better, not bitter. That's why Peter uses this illustration here in 1 Peter 1, 6 about quality assurance control, that we're going through the refiner's fire. See this? 6 through 7, suffering is compared to the fire. The goldsmith uses fire to remove the impurities called the dross from the gold. As the gold goes under the heat, it's weakened and softened for a period of time. The dross floats to the top, it's skimmed off. Then the gold is poured back in, cooled off, and it becomes stronger and of greater value. Suffering is compared to the fire. Faith is compared to the gold. This, our faith, is greater than gold in the fact that it will never perish under the fire. It's quality assurance control. There are whole industries in America where people or corporations create products but deliberately do not put them through quality assurance control or even test them because they do not want to know. They hope to sell enough to make millions and millions of dollars so if something goes wrong down the road, they can settle out of court in a class action suit and still make millions and millions of dollars. You see this happening all the time. All over television, there are claims by products that are not FDA approved. And I, I know the FDA government approval agency sometimes does not get it right, so don't come to me afterwards saying, how come you're sponsoring FDA for everything? But I am saying the FDA a lot of times does get it right and there needs to be some sort of quality assurance control. And your radar should be up when the TV commercial saying it's not FDA approved. You should be saying, well, why not? If it's not FDA approved, what other strict testings has it gone through? Because what you find so often later on, years later after a product's been sold, side effects occur, lawsuits are brought, They are settled, but millions and millions of dollars have already been made. Shark Tank is a TV show where wealthy investors interview people and decide whether or not to invest in their product. Have you seen that show? One time this guy had this product that he claimed would give a person enough energy for eight hours in a workday by just taking three pills a day. It's all you had to take. And oh, by the way, he lost 40 pounds in a very short period of time. Uh, Mark Cuban, one of the wealthy investors, asked this entrepreneur a simple question What have been your testing measures to prove that these natural products you're using are safe, that it works, that it's effective? What doctors have you consulted? What quality controls are you using? And the guy said, well, that's why I'm here today. I need that money from you to run those tests. I've already sold a bunch of them, but I need those in order to get even better quality assurance control. And Mark Cuban said, you are lying You are a snake oil salesman? Look that up. I had to look it up. I forgot. wasn't quite sure what that was. It's somebody who's just pulling the wool over people's eyes. Someone who's just selling things that aren't true. 
Cuban says, you're here to get money so you can make more money and more money, and you don't want to test this product. I'm out. I'm not going to invest in your product. And one by one, the other investors, good for them, said the very same thing. You know, when push comes to shove, we really don't want to have our faith tested either. Many of us are very content not to know whether or not we have a weak faith or a strong faith. We don't want to go through the refinement. But God loves us. He's not going to allow us just to go through life without that faith being tested. God would not be holy unless he was willing to test us to make our faith more mature. Isn't that what James writes about in his letter? The testing of our faith, this quality assurance identifies the weak points in our life. It shows us where we're weak, where we need greater growth, more maturing. And we find out what those impurities are, the dross in our faith, the doubts, the fears, the sinful habits, the immaturities. And through the refinement process, God removes those impurities and we develop a perseverance that leads to maturity. Isn't that great? Now, there's no question that the testing is painful. The group REM came out with a song several years ago. It was a song that, to encourage those who were going through the fires of suffering that were wanting to give up through their major problems and hurts. And the chorus line is this, everybody cries, everybody hurts, sometimes. That's so true. Suffering hurts, the refining process hurts. Go back to Job 1, 20, verse 22. What is Job going through? Hurt, hurt big time. He's crying, he's hurting, he's suffering. He tears his robe. He shaves his head. He goes into deep mourning. But he still continues to worship God. He does not blame God. Paul tells the Romans that if you're going to have a great character filled with great hope, you're going to have to suffer. It's inevitable. See that? Suffering's required. It hurts. It's the fire of suffering that produces the purity of faith. It begins with perseverance that leads to a quality character which produces this hope. And when you tie that back into James again, it's necessary for quality assurance. If we don't go through the testing, remember, we will never know how strong or weak we are in faith. God is building us not only for a lifetime but for eternity. And to do that, it must be built in a faith that's growing and mature. That's why Peter says, our faith that has gone through the refiner's fire is a genuine faith. It is a proven faith. It is a valuable faith. It is a lasting faith. It is a rewarding faith. Now that's for now. When we have this refinement fire, it strengthens our faith now. But you know what Paul says to the Corinthians about the future judgment. Christians don't go through the fiery judgment of unbelievers, but they go through the refiner's fire. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The things that we do here in faith, as he describes as wood, gold, straw, or stubble. In this life, there are things that we do in faith, but we really never know if they have everlasting value until the finer, final refiner's fire. Because in the end, nothing impure gets into heaven. And that's the greatest quality assurance ever, isn't it? God is a holy, holy God, and nothing unholy will ever get into his presence or into his residence. 
So we will go through the final refiner's fire that removes any final impurities from our faith before we get going to heaven. And Paul says that that fire, that refiner's fire, will test the quality of each one of our works. So live intentionally. Yes, there's tests in lives. Everything is a test. But what God wants to do for us is for us to live the life of a strong faith and maturity here that's growing, that's valuable, that is preparing us to live with Him forever in heaven. Now, as we go through the refinement process, we also experience what God wants to do for us. So instead of just questioning and staying in the state of questioning the why of this suffering, why am I going through this, why is this happening to me, what, what is it that God is trying to do for me? Uh, he wants us to live by doctrines that he has set forth. Now I know that most of us think about the word doctrine and we have this negative connotation to it. Doctrine are those rules we talk about in church what we can do, and this long list of what we can or cannot do. You better not do those things. But doctrines are non-negotiables. These are the things which we live by, which we will not negotiate on, which we put into practice based upon the Word of God. So how can I know, going through a trial, that I can get the most out of it, where I can grow better and not bitter? Well, I think there's certain things that we have to declare in our heart, and with our words, the things that we will do by the strength of Jesus Christ. Here's a few of them. First of all, Peter says, doctrine number one, I will revere the Lord. See that? Revere Christ in your hearts. When you're suffering, determine to revere Christ in your heart. I'm going to continue to worship him. I'm going to continue to praise him, even when I don't feel like it. You know, Job is selected by the devil because the devil knows Job loves to fear God and worship him and shun evil. Devil says, I'll take away all your benefits and you'll stop worshiping God. You'll stop revering him as Lord. Job did not. He continued to revere the Lord in his heart and so must we. Uh, Doctrine number two. Peter says, I must keep a clear conscience. Now, intense suffering often makes us angry and grumpy and complainers and self-absorbed and short-tempered, where we take it out on those around us, most often on the ones that we love the most. We are going to be all those things I just mentioned from time to time. We all go through those stages of suffering. No one uh, skips those. There are chunks of time that we spend in anger and depression before there's ever acceptance and trust. We don't feel like ourselves. We lose our compass, our sense of direction in times of great suffering. Not sure who we are anymore. What is our new norm? Frustration kicks in. Oftentimes medications are involved. Our patience begins to wear thin. If we're not careful, our new norm is one that we grow more angrier and depressed, filled with greater bitterness. And what is in our heart Our attitude will be expressed in our words and actions towards others. It's natural for suffering to do this to us, but it's not an excuse for self-pity or to remain there or to lash out at others. We got to keep a clear conscience. We don't have an excuse to abandon our obedience to God. We don't have an excuse because we're suffering to lash out at others and lose our Christ-like example. 
We don't cave into the suffering and uses, use it as some excuse to treat others poorly. We must keep a clear conscience by keeping our good behavior. Now, notice in context of Peter, it has to do with being a Christian. Notice unbelievers are maliciously speaking and slandering those Christians for their Christian lifestyle. Now, listen, we should speak out and exercise our civic duties when Christian liberties are being threatened. If we do not do that, no one else will do that for us. I mean, Paul invoked his Roman citizenship for being unfairly treated after a beating and imprisonment in Philippi. He did not do it just to lash out or seek revenge, but to show that in a clear conscience, we can exercise our civic duty with gentleness and respect. We need to do that. Peter is in jail, about to be ex executed within a year. Not because he was trying to overthrow the government. Not because he had committed any crime, but because he was a Christian. He could have gotten bitter about this. He could have used his writings to lash out the Roman government for their intolerance of Christianity. He could have taken it out on John Mark and others around him and loudly complained about it being unfair, but he didn't. No, he practiced what he preached, a shepherd to those suffering. He encouraged them in their suffering. Don't lash out at those who are mistreating you or slandering you. Keep living the good life with a clear conscience. Why? Because it's an opportunity. If we give into our sufferings and let it change our behaviors and attitude and fill our words with anger and depression, that causes actions that lash out at those around us, the devil wins. His intention to destroy our faith or to keep others from faith succeeds. Keep a clear conscience. Doctrine number three. Remain hopeful. See it in this verse here in Peter again? Others who do not believe will see how you're living through the refinement process and they'll ask you how you're doing and you're able to give them a reason for your hope with gentleness and respect. You share with them that your hope is in God, which is what Paul said back in Romans 5. We have a hope poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that will never be put to shame. Doctrine number five, I'm going to keep on rejoicing. Through the discipline of worship and prayer and the word of God, I'm going to hold on to the promise of God. See that in these three verses? What promise? What a wonderful promise from God. The promise of perseverance through Paul and James. The incredible belief, even when we don't see him, Peter says, leads to an inexpressible joy. So when we live by those four doctrines and declare that we're going to do these things by the strength of Christ, there is an outcome, doctrine number five. I will defeat by the strength of Christ, Satan's intentions. You see that in 1 Peter 2, don't you? Look there. As you're suffering and others around you don't understand why you're holding on to your faith, you say, I'm going to continue to live the good life. I'm determined to be obedient to God. I am not going to let Satan defeat me in this. No, I am being refined. It's going to hurt. Others around me may not understand it. I may not always understand it, but I am going to give victory to Jesus. 
It is interesting how people respond to you when you live by the great doctrines of God, particularly in times of suffering. When you intentionally live the good life of God, when you're going through those refining fires of suffering, some find your attitude towards that very appealing and are converted to Christ. Others find what you're doing just simply repulsive and they pull away or they're highly critical of you, usually by saying something bad about you behind your back to other people. I just can't believe that he still believes in that God when that God has let him down. It just doesn't make any sense. That's what they'll say. Uh, we live the good life. Some are drawn to Jesus. When you live the good life, some are repulsed by Jesus. See it in the verse here. When you live the good life, some are repelled. They accuse you of being wrong. They're accusing you of choosing wrong. For others, though, it's appealing. They're drawn to Christ. So when the day that God visits us, the day of conversion, the day of great rejoicing, of a being with God, they have been converted because of the good deeds they saw in you as a Christian. You kept doing the good things with a clear conscience. You did not give up on God. Uh, Peter says the same thing in chapter 3, 15 through 17. But in this case... It's a person that at first was repulsed by your attitude and suffering and holding on to God. But now they see how you live in your life. And now they are drawn to Christ and changed. And that's why Peter said it's worth living this way, living the good life, doing good instead of evil. It's better to suffer for God's will to do good because you defeat the devil's intention and you have the possibility of having your faith confirmed and others lead, led to Christ as well. Think about the Sermon on the Mount for a moment with Jesus. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus says, when you live by these kingdom principles, you're going to be blessed. <laughs> you're going to defeat Satan's intentions. Yet at the same time, you're being blessed. Others are going to be repulsed by you and they are going to come against you. Isn't that what he says in verse 12? Hey, they persecuted me. <laughs> don't think for a moment. They don't think for a minute. They won't persecute you. When you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, you're going to be repulsive to some and others. It's going to be very appealing. They're going to be repulsed by what's going on in your life, just like they were with the prophets. But others are going to be drawn to God because of the light of Christ in you and the salt that you are of God. And they're going to give glory to God because of your intentional living. So in our life, there's something both repulsive and attractive. Well, you say, how can that be true? Well, we know it just from a practical standpoint. You tell, all, you tell your best friend, I have found Mr. Wonderful. And your best friend looks at him and thinks, no, nah, he's Mr. Wrong. You tell your friends, I, I think she's the one. And they take a look at her and they're thinking, you'd better run. Some find your jokes funny. Others find them offensive. Some think you're a straightforward shooter. Others think you're very rude. Others think you're very highly organized. Others think, man, you're really uptight. Some think you're a really good listener, while others think you're just a gossip. Some think you're a good forgiver. Others think you're a pushover. Some think, oh, you're so generous. Others think you're being used. Some think you're a peacemaker. Others think you're a coward. Others think you're just so spontaneous and fun. Others think you're so undependable and unreliable. 
Others think you're so optimistic, while others think you are naive. You're the same person, people looking at you differently. Some drawn to you, some repulsed by you. Get my point? In all of us, there is appealing and repelling qualities. That's kind of why Baskin-Robbins has 32 flavors of ice cream. We all like different things. But it's more than just personality. This explains a lot of why what happened to Paul and Peter and numerous others when they were put to death for just living a Christian life in the good name of Christ. Blessed by Jesus, repulsed and persecuted by others. This helps explain why numerous people in our time are being executed by the ISIS radical terrorist group simply because they're followers of Christ. It's repulsive to them that we would live a life for Jesus. And therefore, we must be eliminated to purify the world of this corruption of the Christian faith. It's why people are repulsed by Israel, even some Christians. They don't understand the position of Israel in the world, that God has said, I will show my sovereignty over all the nations through Israel. And many people, including Christians, get upset when we give financial aid and say we're going to support Israel. They don't understand it. Some are drawn to Israel because they know God's word, that those nations that bless Israel will be blessed, and others are repulsed by Israel just wanting us to do away with any support with them whatsoever, not knowing that if we give up on Israel as a nation, God will give up on us as well. You see, we're so in love with Christ and know that there's no other way to live that we sometimes forget that not everyone wants to live the good life of Christ. And more than that, there are others so repulsed by Jesus that they will do everything within their power to discredit or stop Christianity from the example that it, sh that it must be or the way promoted as the best way to live. I mean, after all, they put Christ on the cross and Jesus says they'll persecute you as well. When you live by the doctrines of God intentionally, it brings victory in faith instead of being defeated by the devil. It's going to be repellent to some, but many, many others are going to be attracted to that gospel as well. And faith will be instilled in them. That's why Paul, one more passage in 2 Corinthians says, when we carry Christ in us, it's the aroma of Christ. For some, it's the perfume of salvation. For others, it's the stench of death. However, I want to live intentionally and under the refinement fire have a greater quality to my life. Therefore, I will live out these doctrines. I will revere the Lord. I will keep a clear conscience. I will remain hopeful. I will greatly rejoice. And by God's power and strength through Jesus Christ, I will defeat the devil's intention of destroying my faith and preventing others from believing by living the good news of Jesus Christ. I understand that by living by these non-negotiables, that for some it will be repulsive, but to others it will be appealing, leading them to accept by faith Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So sufferings that hurt and are complex can be used for either good or bad. It depends which intention you choose. The intention of the devil to destroy or the intention of God to refine. Which will you choose? As we said at the outset of this series called Encourage from Peter's letter, Peter links the topics he covers back to the cross, the resurrection, and the return of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. When he talks about the refinement of suffering, it is no different. The Lord Jesus Christ is both our Savior and example in the furnace of refinement. In Jesus, we have a Savior who clarifies our intentions. 
an example of the quality assurance of a pure and perfect faith. He is the personified doctrine of reverence, clear conscience, hope, rejoicing, praise, glory, and honor. And he is the Savior who decisively defeated Satan. You see all that in 1 Peter 3.18. What does Jesus do? He brings us to God. How? By suffering on the cross for our salvation brings us righteousness. What did he do? He defeated Satan by the power of God through the resurrection from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise us from the dead. No grave could hold him. No grave can hold us. The fear of death, the sting of death is conquered by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he will triumphantly return for his followers who live in faith and obedience to him. So how are you preparing? What disciplines of faith are you exercising daily? Where are you in your relationship with Christ? Are you living intentionally with the right expectations, the right explanations, and the right determination to see God's will triumph over evil? What are the doctrines that you are living by, that you have determined that I will do these things to defeat the devil? Are you living for yourself? Are you living for yourself more? Are you self-absorbed? Or are you living out the gospel, the good life, the good news of Christ that seeks to serve and love others? Are you getting better or bitter? Don't you see how all those questions are answered in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? By faith in him, we are brought to the God who cares for us and never forgets us like a better than a mom who loves her newborn baby. A God who in the midst of anything that happens to us can accomplish something good that confirms faith in us and others and or leads others to be drawn to Christ and put their faith in him. Let me encourage you, be intentional in your living. See what God can and will do. Don't be a victim of God's intention, of, of the devil's intention of destruction. Be triumphant in Christ Jesus. If you believe Jesus is Lord and want to be saved by what he did for you on the cross, I invite you to be baptized into his name and receive forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're ready to do that today, come forward during the next song or get with myself or someone who brought you after service and let's do that today. If you feel like you're being defeated and not doing well or experiencing victory or not experiencing victory in Christ the way you should, I ask God during the singing of this next song to take care of you. Pray to him, God, take care of me. Or maybe you want to come forward uh, during the singing of the next song and let us pray with you. We'd love to do that. But let's all leave here today rejoicing. Yes, I said rejoicing from this sermon on refinement of suffering rejoicing because in Christ our Lord and example we have salvation, hope, eternal life and a God who takes the fiery trials of life and refines us to make our faith genuine and more precious than gold. Let's stand together and sing.